Word of Life. It's the title of our fall sermon series. It's a title given to Jesus by none other than the apostle, which scripture says, whom Jesus loved. You know, you don't maybe think of the book of Acts as being a book that has prophecy in it, but there's actually a prophecy in it spoken from the mouth of Paul. He said this, in the times after Jesus ascends and go to heaven, what will happen is that there's gonna be wolves that come, he says. There's going to be liars that come and they'll spread lies about Jesus and his life. They'll spread lies about what he said, his words. They'll spread lies about his life, who he was. Beware of them. And what was scarier about that prophecy than even the fact that wolves would come, he said, they'll come from within the church. Don't necessarily be looking from the outside. They'll come from within. Watch for this. Well, in the time of the writing of the book we'll be looking at today, it's approximately AD 90. So we're, we're talking only 50, 60, 70 years after Jesus walked the earth and was ascended into heaven. The apostle Paul has died at this point and all of the disciples have been martyred for what they believed and taught except for one. There's one more still alive. And that leadership void was allowing certain teachers, the scripture would call them even antichrists, coming up from within the church and they started in homes throughout a city called Ephesus. And, and what was being spread had its roots in a system of thinking that fell under something called Gnosticism. They claimed to have a higher knowledge. There was a Greek word, logos, and they claimed to have this logos, which included claiming the spirit of a man is good and the body, oh, that's evil. And that led to some application because they would say that Jesus, oh, he existed in more of a spirit form, but he couldn't have had a body for the body is evil. And if the body is evil, then we can live however we want. And this knowledge, if you will, this pursuit of knowledge led to elitism. And the church started feeling the things that they believed was archaic and irrelevant and for simple-minded people. What included in that thinking was that they have this knowledge of what is good, the spirit, oh, that's good, but the body is evil. And so Jewish Christians as well as Hellenistic Christians began to doubt whether Jesus was God. Because if Jesus did have a body, then how could he be God? Because that's evil. And if Jesus is spirit and is good, well, then how could he be God if he had a, a body? And so confusion was arising, which led to a lack of assurance, which led to a lack of joy in the church. And on top of that, there were people that were beginning to leave the church. They were deconstructing their faith, if you will. 
And people were left wondering, is this thing about Jesus maybe not true? Is it possible that I am a a limited thinker and I'm not like the elite? And this chronological snobbery of knowledge, the relativism of the day, and the doubt that hovered over Christianity left many without joy, being sad for the world they live in and being sad of the state of the church. Sound familiar? We're living in a time period very similar to that time period. And this Gnosticism was flowing throughout. It was almost like they were saying this. It was almost like they saying, we know the truth about God, for we have a higher knowledge of what is good and evil. And let us teach you these new teachings, this new word, much like when people don't understand the forces of what God does, sometimes they'll call it mother nature. Well, they use this word logos, this word we have, this knowledge we have that is elite and only for those of higher learning. And he left the church confused about Jesus only a few years after he's gone. Who's gonna say something? Are we just gonna let people walk around and lie about Jesus? I mean, are we gonna allow this this theme of the, the time period about Jesus to go out? I mean, who could say something? Who could do something? And that's where this last man standing comes into play. He grabs a pen late in his life. He's no longer a young man. He's advanced 10 years. He has not been exiled yet to the island of Patmos where he'll write the book of Revelation. But he is an old, old man. And he has something he wants to teach the church. Now, they say when you're a younger man, you try to work, so you try to let everybody be heard. As you get a little bit older, the less you care about people's opinions and you just start speaking. This is where John's at. But he delivers it with such a pastoral warmth and such a care for who he's writing because he desperately does not want them to lose what they have with their salvation. And so John, the disciple whom Jesus loves, writes a book and tells them exactly why he wrote it. One, so that they might have their joy back. I'm writing these things so your joy may be complete. He writes for their devotion to return. I'm writing these things to you that you might not sin. Don't walk in darkness, walk in light. Let your love for one another be exemplary. He writes for their discernment. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. And he writes for their assurance. I am writing these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. In a time period we live in, where it feels uncertainty abounds, the word of God is even more certain. In a time period where it feels like doubt is winning the day, assurance can be found. And in a time period where we may feel we see the days drawing near, all the more to be assured that you know Jesus as your personal savior and you truly are saved from the wrath and judgment that is to come. Did you know there was a book written towards these things? Did you know there was a book that spoke about the assurance you can have of salvation? Throughout this series, we're gonna touch on these topics and more as we discuss 
what John calls the word of life. We'll open the book of the gospel of 1 John. We'll look at the first four verses today. And if you've ever been on a little lake or a, or a little, little river, and you've been with somebody who knows the terrain better than you, and they say something like, it's very shallow here, nothing to worry about, it's very shallow. And you can even stick your, your oar down. Maybe you're in a kayak, you can stick your oar down, you can, feel, you can feel the surface, it's not very far away. But then you get to an area, and he says, now careful, it's a lot deeper here. Oh, it's probably 20, 30, 50 feet deep. And you go, come on, it doesn't look any different on the surface. And you put your oar in, and it can't even touch the bottom. You feel a little differently about it. Well, the, the book of 1 John, you might think this little book in the back of your New Testament is simple, and there's nothing to it. But I got some encouragement for you. It's incredibly deep. It's full of theological truth. It has hermeneutic challenges and it has depth as you discover each precious word, this older man of the faith. Do you know anybody who you respect so much, who loves Jesus so much and they're older and they just speak truth with an incredible love for others? That's the words at First John. I pray it fills you with confidence in a day of confusion. It fills you with joy in a day of sadness. And it fills you with assurance that you know Christ as your savior. The series, Word of Life, a study in 1 John. Lord, use your text to grow your church, both in grace and in truth. Lord, today, as we're gathered, not only here and in other auditoriums and online, I pray you remove this time from distraction that we might hear from you, that we might hear from the word of life, Jesus. And Lord, we're going to hear a man who desperately loved Jesus. And in a time period when people were making up lies about his precious Jesus, he wrote and very frankly said, you don't know my Jesus. Lord, let it be known of us today that we know Jesus and let this study get us excited to know even better the word of life. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning, everyone. I guess you have seen even during our singing time, we're gathered not only in this auditorium, but in the other auditorium, as well as throughout the campus. Lord, thank you so much, everyone, for being flexible as we're growing into our spaces, as well as taking out our spaces as we continue our construction. It's good to have all of you gathering around the truth of the word of God today. Word of life, if you've got your scriptures with you, it's 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. There are some arguments of who wrote this book, but I actually think they're agenda-based, for it's pretty explanatory for me, looking at only internal evidences that this is John himself, as well as early church and church history, defending that these are the writings of John, Jesus's disciple whom he loved. He used that phrase in the gospel of John for he didn't want to even put his name, many, many commentators believe, for he wanted to keep his name out of it and just talk about the fact that he couldn't believe Jesus loved him. What a name he gave Jesus here in this, in this first John. Word of life. What does word mean? Well, word carries the idea of everything he said. 
his message, what he spoke about, his teachings, his word. And not only top of that, his life, his character, his behavior, his personality, and of course, the eternality he provides. And John writes 1 John with such an incredible love and pastoral warmth, but incredibly black and white. He says things like, if you say you know him, but you don't love others, the love of God isn't in you. If you say you have not sinned, you're a liar and you're deceiving yourself. He's extremely black and white, but he's also incredibly loving. You know, when you think about our author, He's often pictured as this kind of, just kind of a, a calm, oh, I love you, Jesus type character. Even you see him on TV, they'll portray him this way. But if you understand where John comes from, he is actually kind of far from that. And I think too much has been put into the fact that he loved Jesus so much that they miss the fact he's the definition of a tough guy, if you will. For he was one of the sons of Zebedee. Zebedee was a wealthy man, many believe, because he had a large fishing business. And both John and his brother, do you remember his name? James worked this. And Jesus called James and John. And James and John were specifically close to Jesus. In fact, they were part of not only his circle with the disciples, but his inner circle of three, James, John, and Peter were almost always with Jesus when you look in the scriptures. Now, Jesus gave these two guys a nickname, these sons of Zebedee. Does anybody remember their nickname? Well, I put it on the screen if you didn't. Sons of Thunder. Sons of Thunder. So if you're nicknamed Sons of Thunder, that means you're most likely not a quiet person or a quiet group of brothers. It means there's probably some opinions. Oh, and there were. It means you're probably pretty passionate. Oh, and they were. It means you're probably a little confrontational. Oh, and they were. In fact, one time, a group of Samaritans did not receive Jesus very well when he came into an area. And you know what James and John came up and said to him? Jesus, can we call down fire and burn them up? How many of you... When you get close to Jesus, you get so annoyed by what the world says about the things of God, you too would go, can we just burn them up? No, Jesus said. No, guys. Ah, that was going to be awesome. We've seen you do a bunch of stuff. We were like, boom, okay? That's not why he came. One day, but not why he came. James was passionate, confrontational. John was black and white. You're either in, you're out. And he speaks into this and he's not messing around. Somebody's got to say what needs to be said. And if you're like me or if you're like someone else, and you go, somebody's got to at least say the truth. Oh, you're going to resonate with John. But James and John also had a little bit of elitism in them. Do you know some people, don't judge, it might be you that sometimes think you deserve things, sometimes think that you've earned things, or, or sometimes tempted to think that better, somebody, somebody, better under, somebody better recognize the fact that you do this or that. Well, James and John seem to have a little elitism in them and, and, and seem to want some things 
for they seem to be very competitive and ambitious people. And I think they got it from their mom. You say, what? Some of you know the scriptures. See, there's this account where the mom, okay, Zebedee's wife, James and John's mom, gets the boys, adult boys, by the way. Come on, thunders. And she comes over to Jesus. She confronts him. She, she walks up to Jesus and says, Jesus, um, we have something we want you to do for us. And, and in one gospel account, it says that John or James said, teacher, we want you to do what we say. Th this is the part, uh, um, teacher, um, appreciate everything you're doing here. Love the crowds, great lessons. Um, we have something we want you to do. And, and you can just imagine Jesus going, okay, what you got, guys? Okay, we can clearly see you're not of this world. We've been trying to destroy the Roman Empire, but you're clearly here for another world. So when we get to this world, this kingdom of yours, um, mom says, I want James and John to sit on either side of you. And James and John believe this is a great plan. Let's just get this out of the way while the other disciples are over there. Let's get this out of the way. When we get to our kingdom, since it's clearly we're closer with you, and yo, know, we come from a very prominent family, um, uh, since we're, we're kind of the greatest, you see, within the disciples, you'll see throughout the gospels, there's always this kind of, uh, who's the greatest? They would walk into a room and these guys were the type to go, who's the greatest in this room? And they would want to compete for that. And they had an ambition for that. I mean, how much stress is even in our own society because teenagers walk in the room and go, who's the greatest in here? We walk on to social media and go, who's the greatest on here? Who has the most followers, right? Or, or we go into a workroom as we get older in life, who's the greatest in here? Or, or we walk, drive into our cul-de-sac and we look around and go, who's the greatest in here? And there's so much stress, so much ambition, so much debt accumulation, so much angst, so much loss of joy, because people deep, deep down inside have the exact same struggle because this world pushes that that is what it's all about. Arriving at the greatest, oh, and the sons of Zebedee, they wanted to be known as the greatest. And Jesus says to them, guys, 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 do you think you can drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Now, Jesus isn't like, I got this little cup of water here. No, the cup he's referring to is the wrath and the suffering he's about to go through on the cross. Do you guys think you can do that? Nobody can do it. Nobody can do it. Do you know what James and John said? Yes. Wow. Lack of self-awareness. Jesus says to him, you will. Oh, you will. but he teaches them not to not pursue greatness. You see, often when you hear Jesus confronted with, how do you become great? You would think Jesus would say, stop trying to be great. Stop that. Stop, you would think, right? You would think, hey, no selfish ambition. Stop trying to be great. He does not say that. In fact, he kind of applauds a life pursuing greatness. But Jesus has a very different definition of greatness than this world. This world teaches a greatness that comes with prominence and fame and success. Jesus has a different definition of greatness and he teaches it to John. And you see that John got the lesson by reading the pages of first John. And within this world, these 
teachers, these antichrists, First John refers to them as, these false teachers are walking around talking about John's Jesus. They're saying stuff about him that's frankly completely untrue and could wreck many people's infant faith in Christ. And he writes into that with almost a tone of, I'm sorry guys, you don't know Jesus. And he begins 1 John with these words. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and what we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. John starts with, in the beginning. He was from the beginning. And if you're familiar with John's other books, especially the Gospel of John, you know that that is a familiar phrase, from the beginning. He wants you to know something. There's some Christology being taught right here in the beginning of this small section of scripture, and it's this. The word of life was with God from the beginning. In the Gospel of John, he writes, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. This word, he steals a Greek word known for the times. And since you all are now nursed in Gnosticism, you realize they leveraged that word. And he says the logos. You know this logos, this word, this concept? The word is Jesus. The word of life was with God from the beginning. Therefore, he was not a created being. He is eternal. He was before even the beginning. In fact, he's the word. When he spoke the word, Colossians tells us Jesus, the author of creation, spoke the words like light, and there was light. What he would speak would come to life. He was the word of life, and he was from the beginning. Why is that important? Because Gnosticism, or the roots of it, were teaching that this Jesus is not relational, just some sort of spirit being. He was not a relational, and John's saying, excuse me? He was from the beginning. He is the word. He is the logos. If you want knowledge, if you want truth, you have to know Jesus. And he was with God as part of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He is God the Son, and he existed and spoke creation into being. He was from the beginning. And then he doubles down. You say, what? He says this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, we have seen with our eyes, we looked upon and we touched with our hands. Could you step into seminary for a second and I want you to note something called the progression of intimacy. What do you mean? Note how he gets more intimate with Jesus as he shares about him. We heard him, then we saw him, and then we gazed, we looked at him, and then we touched him. Do you see how he gets closer? 
Make no mistake, John loved Jesus. He loved him so much and he just loves talking to him, talking about him. I've got to think he is reviewing this in my, his mind as he writes these words. And so I was pleased to find that in the roots of each one of these words carries the idea of the fact that these things that he heard and saw and looked at are still abiding in him. They're still reminding him. Hey, can you remember the first time you saw the one you fell in love with? Can you remember the first time you laid eyes, moms, on that little baby they brought to you? Can you remember those moments and it still abides in you? You can still draw them up and think about it. That's where John's at and he's saying, oh my word, you're talking about Jesus like he's not real? I heard him speak. I saw him with my eyes. Oh, that which we heard. You should have walked along the streets with him. He, he would just teach us. We would say something. He'd go, he'd go, John, blessed are they who mourn. He, he, would, he would stop and see children. Nobody talked to children. I can imagine John just thinking about nobody's talking. And Jesus would go over, he'd go, hey, and he'd get down, he'd say, let the little children come to me. We'd be walking along and he spotted this woman at the well and she appeared to us to be a sinner and Jesus walked right up to her. You should have heard him talk to her. Oh, we heard him in all his teachings, how grace-filled he was even when we'd fall asleep on him when he was praying, we heard him. Oh, Jesus. And he goes even further. He says, we've seen him with our eyes. We saw him. You should have seen. We, we were out of food. We had some 5,000 people gathered on a hillside. Jesus was teaching phenomenally that day. I wonder if John's thinking, we saw him. You wouldn't believe this. We had to feed all these people. There was no way. We, we, we called over to Nathaniel. We said, Nathaniel, can we feed him? He said, we don't have enough. And, and we had one of our disciples, they went out and looked. He said, can we find anything? And we brought him back a few loaves and a few fish and he fed everybody. There's some five, 600 people in this room. They fed 5,000 with a few. We saw it with our eyes. Not only that, John says, we looked at him. We gazed at him. The word means... It means to, to not only see him, but to just gaze. And so it says, which we looked upon. Oh, I wonder if John is thinking of the time where there were these lepers and nobody would be around them. In fact, if they came near them, they'd yell unclean and they were dismissed from society. Nobody would talk to these people. They were, they were just this disgusting, terrible things to look at and they would yell out, Jesus, have pity on us. And we watched him stop. What? He'd walk over and he'd talk to them. Oh, and sometimes he would heal people even on the Sabbath day with the Pharisees standing right by. We saw a lame man in the street and he couldn't even walk. Jesus not only healed him, but on a day where the Pharisees would say, you cannot carry your mat. He said, take up your bed and walk. Eh, right past him if you want. He was amazing. Oh, sometimes the Pharisees would try to corner him. I bet John was thinking, oh, I just stared at him as I watched him say, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Just do the next right thing. They could never trick him. John loved Jesus. He loved him so much. He says, we touched him. 
Oh, I wonder if John's thinking of the time where Peter jumped out of the boat. Peter, Peter, where are you going? He saw Jesus. See, most people take boats when they go across water. Sometimes Jesus just walked. John remembers it. He saw it. And he remembers watching Peter sink in the water and Jesus reaching down and grabbing him because you could touch him. And John says, we touched him. You don't know Jesus. You don't get to not walk around this earth confusing the church with who Jesus is, with your higher knowledge. We heard him. We saw him. We stared at him. We touched him. Concerning the words, I think of his words and his life. He was awesome. This Wonderful grandpa of the faith is writing to a young church terrified by these religious leaders trying to confuse them as well as these false teachers that had come up from within and he said, you don't know Jesus. We know Jesus. Are you familiar with the name Warner Wallace? He is a leading detective and if you've ever watched shows like Dateline, you've seen him. He's on Dateline a lot and he's used often as their homicide detective because one of his strengths, in fact, what he is renowned for is his cold cases and digging up past cases and coming to a conclusion of what happened. And it breaks great television, but it's also his job. And on top of that, did you know that Warner Wallace is a Christian and he has written a book called Cold Case Christianity, where he teaches apologetics using the methods that he uses for investigating cold cases to investigate the things like the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, as well as his life. And do you know what he says is the number one thing homicide detectives need if they're gonna get to the bottom of a case that has been cold? Eyewitness testimony, number one thing. If you can get eyewitness testimony, he says in his book, Cold Case Christianity, he says, if you can get eyewitness testimony, we will get to the bottom of the story. For there's nothing stronger than eyewitness testimony. Do you know what John says to all these false teachers of the day? You don't know my Jesus. I do. I saw him. I looked at him. I heard him. I touched him. I know the word of life. And that life was made manifest. That life, that life that was before time, before the world existed, this great creator God, it was made manifest. It came to earth as human. We have seen it and we testify to it and we proclaim to you, it's the eternal life. It's not just a life, it's the eternal life. It was with the Father and it was made manifest to us. Now when that really, really begins to sink in is you realize that made manifest means another incredible aspect of Christology. The word of life came to earth to offer eternal life. That's the idea behind manifest, that the word of life came to earth to offer eternal life. Why is that important? For there was another false teaching creeping into the church. It was called docetism. It denied Jesus was human. 
It, it denied that Jesus took on flesh. It claimed that Jesus was only a spirit being. In fact, it claimed that Jesus was a phantom. And they were saying, oh, Jesus wasn't real. He was simply a phantom. We're only talking 50, 60 years since Jesus has been dead. And it's already, he was kind of like a Marvel cartoon character or a, or a mythological character from the Greek um, mythology. He, he wasn't real. And, and it was just like a, a phantom. This is already creeping into the church. And John's going, whoa, whoa, what, 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 what? The life was made manifest. That what was before creation. That spoke creation to be. The word of life came to offer eternal life. The life was manifested. And maybe that's what he's thinking when he thinks about docetism. For they were basically claiming this that Jesus appeared to be a man with body and flesh, but he was actually just a phantom, only a spirit being. No, 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 no. He was made manifest. It's John who writes this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God is not a phantom. God is spirit, but he came in flesh. He was fully God and fully man. And Mary was holding a baby that was Jesus the Lord. And Jesus, that baby, was being held in the very hands he created. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Don't believe these lies. He was made manifest and we saw him. I wonder how many remember the day Jesus called him in their fishing boat. John, James. I wonder if John is thinking of the time Simon, oh my word, Simon, what a piece of work Simon was. Passion, leader didn't really ask what other people were doing. He'd say things even after the crucifixion. He'd say, well, he's gone. I'm going fishing. And they would go, I guess we're going fishing. You got an influential type in your friend group where it's like, we're kind of kind of do what they do. They're just an influential. That was Simon. And, and Jesus walked up to him and he said, Simon, I will now call you Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church. Oh, we saw him. And on top of that, we testified. We testified. We watched him crawl up Galgotha's hill with that cross. We watched him bleed. He shed blood right before our eyes. He climbed Galgotha's hill. They put him on that cross. They hammered the nails into his hands. And I will testify to it, John says, as, a, as an eyewitness that I saw him die. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. You gotta understand, Thomas wouldn't even believe it himself. He saw Jesus, but he would not believe that he rose from the dead till he said, I see his hands and I see his feet. And Jesus appeared. He was made manifest to us in that room and he showed himself to us resurrected and fully alive and that we proclaim to you. And, and on top of that, that which we've seen, 
He writes, that which we've seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. Well, time out, what? We want you to have fellowship with us. If you've been hearing me talk about my wonderful Jesus, John says this, you can know him too. What? You can have fellowship just like we did. No, that's not possible. Jesus is dead. No, he's not. Jesus is a phantom. No, he's not. Jesus, um, he came and he left and he's not around, so we can't see him, so we can't really know. Not true. He is alive. He is the word of life and he is speaking through his word to this day. And he wants to have a relationship with you. He wants to have fellowship with you. And one of the reasons that verse doesn't speak to us is we've got this weird definition of fellowship based on all of our church upgradings where the church had a fellowship hall, right? We're gonna meet you down at the fellowship hall after the service. And so we think of a fellowship hall as finger food fellowship or potluck or whatever. That's a fellowship, that's a fellowship. That's not the fellowship. This word is If you look at beneath the surface at the Greek word that is translated to English fellowship, the Greek word is koinonia. Now koinonia carries a deeper meaning of fellowship. It means that everyone who's gathered together is in agreement on the subject, views it the same way, and celebrates it with the same enthusiasm. Let me explain in American terms. If you're a Philadelphia Eagles fan, and you watch your team in the playoffs and you're stressed, all right? You've got your jersey on. You've got your Reggie White jersey on. I mean, you've been an Eagles fan for years. And you watch the game with a Dallas Cowboy fan. It'll destroy your afternoon. There are things that won't go on in there that shouldn't be repeated at church because of your passion for your team. But... When you're in the room and everybody's in agreement on that sports team, oh, there's fellowship. We all agree the same thing. This is the greatest team on earth. We all fellowship and celebrate whenever there's a good thing. We rejoice in it. I mean, I'll tell you what, it's the best scenario I can think of in my head where I've experienced with a group of believers in this kind of side. Oh, I've got spiritual ones, but, but in that idea, I can remember 2008. I remember Brad Lidge on the mound. If you're joining us from another state, just listen in for a minute. My Phillies were in the playoffs. It's why I'm a little tired this morning. (laughs) And they were pitching, and I was in a room with all guys, uh, all my friends, and we were gathered together fellowshipping because we all wanted the same thing. We all believed the same thing, and we were all hoping for the same thing. And when it occurred, we started jumping over. We were here at the church, actually, and one of the guys just ran into the parking lot, just ran around the parking lot, really, they were screaming, I can't believe this happened. I can't believe, things like God is good is coming out of us. It's just a very ungodly approach to it. Why? Because we were fellows, we had the same celebration, the same gathering. This is what he wants for us around Jesus Christ, that you believe the same things as each one of you about him, that he is God. He can be known and he wants a relationship with you. Never was that fellowship for John so endearing than that night they gathered for supper. History has posed John as one laying by Jesus, 
Oh, and he loved to lay at the feet of Jesus. This strong, industrial, confident young man, full of information and know-how from growing up in the Zebedee family would lay at Jesus' feet in astonishment as he would say things like, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. John melted around the word of life. And the very thought that he was being lied about by these teachers of the day and that the church was losing the confidence of their salvation was unacceptable to him. For he loved Jesus. And if you love Jesus and you hear him lied about and talk poorly about, it hurts you like it hurt John. He wants us to have fellowship with him and believing the same thing he believes because he knows that fellowship will produce in the followers of Christ a wonderful assurance and confidence even in the darkest of day that Jesus is God. In the four gospels, they often record stories, the same stories, and you get to hear different perspective about those same stories. But there's one story that only John records in his gospel. One story. And I gotta think the reason he recorded it was because it meant so much to him. I feel it might be that moment where Jesus taught him the most. And it was the moment Jesus answered John's passionate cry of his life. He answered what it meant to be the greatest. You see, what people forget often in the context of the Lord's Supper is that the disciples had just had an argument. Do you know what the argument was about? Who's the greatest? Don't talk about who's the greatest around Peter. Don't talk about who's the greatest around James. Don't talk about who's the greatest around John because they're willing to express who they feel is the greatest. And they're arguing about this. And they come into that supper room and John shares this wonderful account only in his gospel in John 13. This is now before the feast of the Passover when Jesus knew his hour to depart was coming. Having loved ones, his own, who are with him in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, something happened. If you've ever operated in business world, you'll know when there's partnerships and there's meetings and there's different things, when, when deals are going down, everyone knows who really needs to affirm it. It's kind of referred to in the business world as the most prominent person in the room. And everyone usually knows who that person is because they often sit at the head of the table. But people sometimes don't even have to say it. Young people, you go to high school, you're in groups, you know when everyone feels that person is the most prominent person in the room. That person's the most influential person in the room. Nobody needs to say it, and if they say it, it's so gross, but everybody kind of knows. 
Ladies, you know this in your friend groups. There's one a little more influential than others. When the business world really set apart because they get titles like CEO things, all these things. And when you know who the most important person in the room is, you kind of default to it because I mean, after all, we all know that, yeah, they're the most prominent person in the room. Well, what do you do when you know you're the most prominent person in the room? What the world would say, you know what, of all you people, that person's the greatest. Jesus was always the most prominent person in the room. Jesus was always the most influential person in the room. And Jesus was always the most powerful person in the room. And the fact that they were arguing about who was the greatest in earshot of the God of the universe is comical in its own. But what he did that day changed John's life, in my opinion, for he's the one who recorded it. They're around the table and they stink. What? They stink. Have you ever been around someone whose feet stink? I mean, have you ever been around a teenage son, hypothetically speaking, who got home from basketball practice and their shoes and their socks stink? Have you ever been around something like that? That's how their dinner smelled. You say, why? Because they didn't have Air Jordans. They walked around in sandals and their feet stunk and they were dirty and disgusting. And they come to dinner and they reclined at the table with their feet. Yuck. This isn't a Michelangelo moment, is it? Disgusting. And what would happen is in that culture, a servant would come around and they'd wash their feet. They'd wash them, cleanse them, make them smell better. And these people of prominence would lay reclining at the table as the culture had a servant go around and wash their feet. And they would keep the conversation going as if that person wasn't even there. I mean, because good grief, they're so beneath them. They're so simple. They're so unacknowledgeable. I mean, come on, we're here gathered around us elite influential men in the room, the greatest men in the room, and we're gathered around the greatest teacher of all time. Do you know what Jesus did? He got up from the table. Where's he going? He walked over the corner. I wonder if Peter was like, what are you doing? He always loved to ask questions before Jesus was answering him. And he got over the corner and these guys, these stinky guys, sitting around arguing over who's the greatest. Jesus grabbed the towel. I bet that room fell silent. What's he doing? He came walking up to each one of them. And he started with Peter. Of course he did. I'll start with the most influential of all of them. He walked up to Peter. And he got down. He started taking Peter's sandals off. And Peter said, what? are you doing? You're not going to wash my feet. No. I don't know if any of you have ever been part of this, but when someone that much more in prominence is kneeling at your naked feet, cleaning off the dirt, it's not just awkward. It's borderline embarrassing. It's humiliating 
For if anybody should be washing anybody's feet, it's not Jesus. And he's saying, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you can have no part with me, no fellowship. And he washed Peter's feet and I bet no one said a word. And folks, in case you thought it takes just a few seconds, he washes his feet and then he gets up and imagine being the next guy. Oh my word, he's coming to me. John, and he washed John's feet. Do you think anybody in this room is discussing who is the greatest right now? Because the greatest man in the room is teaching them what it means to be great. Do you know what the person who realizes their most prominent person in the room does if they're a follower of Christ? They grab a towel and serve everybody. Because the last shall be first in the kingdom of God. I have no problem with you all pursuing greatness, Jesus says. But the definition of greatness is being a servant. It was a lesson John learned. It was a lesson that brought true joy. Life is not about beating everyone. Life is not about competing with the house next to you. Life is not about going, look what material possession I got. Jesus is like, that's worldliness. Life is about serving one another. And John says, when you get that partnership with Jesus, when you let him wash your feet and he teaches you what greatness really is, you learn that fellowship with him is the word of life offers the same fellowship he had with the disciples. He wants to love you like he loved them. That koinonia fellowship. And we need that love to have joy in a world that's got a hole in its heart right now and is bleeding and desperately needs the truth from the children of God. Therefore, they must walk in confidence for just in that day where Gnosticism was still teaching, there's no need for love. Knowledge is the most important thing. Jesus taught them what true joy is. And John writes, I am writing these things that your joy may be complete. As if joy was a sign on a building who had a few lights out. It wasn't a complete joy. Do you drive by those signs and think, could you, could I, maybe I offer to pay to turn one of the lights on, it's bothering me. Your joy's incomplete. You've lost your joy in this world because you've allowed the lies to creep in. You need to turn the light on. Have you ever heard the phrase joy as an acronym? Jesus, others, you. Could I just put that into John? Joy is knowing Jesus is your savior. Your joy can be complete when you know Jesus as your savior. Oh, others is your focus. When others become your focus, the stress of competition, the shame of not measuring up, the prison of performing for other people grows strangely dim when you take on life with joy. That's complete joy. It's found in serving others. Watch anxiety fall away when you stop trying to fight for your own survival or for your own protection. It's not about me today. 
Anxiety says, watch out, take care, don't let this happen to you. Joy comes when you make it about other people. But it's not complete until you know the word of life. This series is about knowing this word of life throughout its contents. We're gonna talk about how Jesus was the light. And in just these four verses, did you see the depth? Were you tempted to think this was a shallow little book, but did you see the depth of four verses? One commentator, Brian Bell says, in this short four verses, Christianity is summed up. Christianity in John's view is fact, not fiction. It is to be proclaimed, not be private. Christianity is to be shared, it's not selfish. And Christianity is rejoicing in the fellowship we have, it's not repressive. Throughout this little book, not only are those themes reiterated, but John is going to share ways that you can know you know the word of life. In fact, he wants to answer that question that burns in so many. How can I know that I have eternal life? Well, here's the first way. Have you accepted Jesus Christ, the God of the universe, Jesus who spoke creation into being and who came and lived a sinless life and shed his blood? Why his blood? Because it had to be perfect blood. Why blood? For the law says there can be no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. And he died on that cross and rose again to offer you eternal life. Oh, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. If you're here today and you've never made a decision in your life to trust Christ as your savior, I wanna encourage you to know the John Jesus. Know this word of life John knew. Scripture says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. Have you ever wanted to turn from the folly of this world and find true fulfillment? Oh, this world offers you a lot of things, but it will never satisfy. Only he satisfies. Why? Because he didn't come to be served. He came to serve and he wants to be a part of your life. And John tells us that this God is no phantom. This God is a relational God and you can have fellowship with him. Why? Because he's not dead, he's alive and he's still speaking through his word to this very day. He's gonna give over 20 ways you can know in this little book that you are saved so you do not have to fear or even question. But if there is ever a thought in your mind, may we start this series with a prayer. And so here to gather together, let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Lord, thank you for sending your son Jesus, the word of life, to offer eternal life. And I pray if there's anyone in here today who does not know Jesus as their savior, that maybe even this day, they would long to know this Jesus that John talks about. This Jesus that he saw, he heard, he touched. And that he says we can have this same fellowship. He's still alive. He's still changing lives. And he can take a hard and tough fisherman 
and turn him into a grace-filled grandpa with love and truth, Pastor John, who loves his children so much, he pens this letter late in life to say, don't listen to them. They don't know my Jesus. And so here today, I pray if there's anyone in here who wishes to pray with me, that even they would at this moment. Dear Father, thank you for sending Jesus into this world to die on the cross to save me from my sin. Forgive me of my sin. I wish to turn from it today and turn towards you. Be my savior. May I rest assured that you've heard my prayer. I will follow you. I will submit to what you ask me to do. I want you to be the savior of my life. Word of life, I pray that I would now find my life in you. In Jesus' name, amen.